5, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. If you'll find your place there, the title of the message is Christ's Power and Mercy Displayed. Christ's Power and Mercy Displayed. And I think you'll see how, how that theme fits with our text today. And as we come now to the 25th sermon in this series, we are getting very ambitious. If you looked at your outline, we're actually taking 20 verses uh, today, God willing. We have been moving at a, a slower pace, but this story really, it, it's hard to split it up, and so we are going to take this larger chunk. And last week, with the calming of the storm, we began a section of four miracles. Just like we had the four parables in Mark 4, there's four miracles, and we see Jesus demonstrating his sovereign authority over hostile forces. Last week, it was the storm. It was a raging hurricane, as it were, literally in the Greek. This week, it'll be over demons and demon possession. And we'll also see that over death and disease next time. This account's obviously very closely related to last week's as Jesus calmed a out-of-control storm Today, he cures an out-of-control man that is demon-possessed, that is self-destructive, that is hurting himself. Humanly speaking, both are impossible to tame, but Jesus Christ, because of who he is and his divinity, subdues both. Now, demons are unclean spirits. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that, but the idea that demons are morally filthy That's why they're called unclean. They're against everything that God is for. They're against everything that Christ is for. Demons and Satan hate you, your family, your church, everything about you as a born-again Christian. We'll see the torment that the demons give this one particular man, the demoniac. But we must remember, even at the outset, as John tells us in his first letter, For the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Let's read the text. We're going to read all 20 verses. Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes, and when he had got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken to pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9, And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. He began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened that the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people. Report to them the great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Would you bow with me as we ask God's help? Our Father, we do come before You yet again. Lord, we recognize in the frailty and in the weakness of our flesh, we cannot keep our mind tuned in to what is happening for more than a few moments apart from Your help. We live in a land of distractions, a land of sound bites and commercials. And Lord, even as we come to Your Word now, we want to learn all that You would have us to learn. So Lord, send the Holy Spirit. Help the one that is speaking. Help those that are listening. Lord, may each receive the Word implanted, which is able to save their souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we, well, you'll remember last time, Jesus, of course, calms the storm, the, the disciples. Jesus says, let us go to the other side. The disciples are, are uh, f- fiercely afraid, panicking as Jesus sleeps on the back cushion. They go and they wake Him up. Do you not care that we are perishing? Really an accusation. Jesus hushes the storm, displaying His divinity that even nature obeys what He says. And at the end of the story, the disciples are more frightened of who this might be rather than the fact that the storm and the waves were coming into the boat. In other words, they had just been confronted with divinity, Jesus Christ divinity. We'll see a similar thing today as I've already alluded to. And as we approach this text, it's interesting to note that typically Mark is the more brief Gospel. He reduces things down compared to the other Gospel writers. I believe Mark was the first Gospel written, but it's interesting that even Matthew takes 20 verses and reduces it down to 7. See, usually it's the other way around. Luke is somewhere in the middle, but we have an exhaustive account of this story before us. And we would do well to pay attention. I think Mark wants us to ponder this account to see exactly what it symbolized. And and the man here described is fully captive to the powers of evil and demons. Uh, The man is, is beyond human help. Everyone had given up on him. He's snapping chains. He's cast off to a graveyard with tombs and rotting skeletons, rotting flesh and skeletons. He has been cast off beyond hope, living among the dead. He's self-destructive. And the picture that we need to come away here with is this. Is that this is the condition of every human being apart from the grace of Christ. Oh, you might not be gashing yourself with real sharp stones, 
causing blood to come forth, but you are self-destructive in that you rebel against God and your flesh and not submit to His Lordship. This particular person is a picture of one that is spiritually dead and in bondage to evil, and every unbeliever is in the same exact situation. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that might offend you, but that is the teaching of the Bible. And this is what makes the Gospel so glorious, isn't it? That we who were formerly dead, we who were formerly in the shackles, we who were formerly under the powers of evil have been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He's regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take this, and if you looked at your outline, oh my goodness, there's five points. How long are we going to be here? We will, Lord willing, be progressing through it. And don't judge the length of the first point by the rest of them because they're, they get shorter as we go along. But there are five paragraphs and we're going to take them in that order. So first of all today, demon possession is a terrible condition. Look again at verse 1. Remember it says, then they came to the other side of the sea. So I want to just point out one thing right off the bat. Back in chapter 4 verse 35, Jesus had said, let us go to the other side. The disciples became startled because of the storm and doubted the word of Christ. The word of Christ was effectual. They make it to the other side. Interesting, Mark includes that for us. But it says that they came to the country of Gerasenes. Now there's different translations for this word and the, the different manuscripts. Um, Gadasaras. And there's also a question as to where this region is. And there's lots of debate. And the commentators spend a great deal of time discussing it. There is a city... Garasa, that was about 30 miles southeast of the area on the northeastern Sea of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum's on the northwest. When they crossed over, they're on the northeast. They didn't cross all the way down to the southeast. But So this city is some 30 miles away. And so as you read the story, and it says, well, as he was coming out of the boat, how did this man, if he's living there, run 30 miles to Jesus, or 35 miles, depending on what you look at? It's simply explained in this, and this is the takeaway. This whole region was named after that city. It had taken on different names through different times. And so it's the country or the region, even as it says in the NAS, in the country of this area. And so it's in this general region. But the point here, there's two things that need to be the, the takeaway from this. Number one, they made it to the other side. Number two, they are now in thoroughly Gentile territory. Okay, Capernaum's more or less Gentile country too, but there's many, many Jews that were there. This is the Gentile um, territory, the area of Decapolis, which is a geographical area of ten cities east of the Jordan, all except for one, which is just on the other side. So this region where this takes place is likely very close to the shore. You picture a as we mentioned last week, these storms could brew up because on the eastern side there would be these steep rocky cliffs. If you've been up to Big Sur, you've been to various places. There's a place where we vacation where there's huge rock cliffs with little crevices and, and, and holes in them. And that's the picture of where this takes place. In fact, all those little holes that would be there would be used for tombs. They would put dead bodies in those places. So caves etched into the cliff, used as tombs, a very rough, jagged area. And immediately, as soon as he gets out of the boat, this demon-possessed man comes to him. 
He's, he's coming to him he's, even as he's getting out of the boat. We need to remember that demons are bent on the destruction of man. They are cruel taskmasters. They torment people to the point of just barely keeping them alive. And, and, and in fact, the, the personality of this man in particular was completely overtaken by the demons, as we'll see here. So there's this sudden confrontation where he comes and he confronts Jesus. A man with an unclean spirit met him. Now, we know that demons are fallen angelic creatures. When Satan exerted himself with his pride against the Most High God, he was cast out of heaven along with one-third of the angels. That is who makes up the demonic realm. Satan, of course, being the ruler of the demons. But also, as we read in our text, Jesus, there's several texts that teach us about Satan and the, and the, the demons and so forth. And, and, and we know that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, not in this context, but in other contexts, which perhaps he's more persuasive at than even in this blatant demon possession. But even as Christ said in John 8, as Colin read that for us, he says in 8.44, you are of your father, the devil, with this confrontation of the Pharisees, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand for truth, and there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie, and that is his nature. He is the father of lies. And maybe the question we want to ask right off the bat, maybe some of you are thinking, is can a Christian be demon-possessed? That's, that's a valid question. <laughs> Certainly that's a valid question. And the answer is, of course not. One that has the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside, that has been regenerated and is born again, the light and darkness cannot dwell together. A demon cannot possess you. The old Flip Wilson adage that the devil made me do it, you can't say that. <laughs> you are a born-again Christian if you are a Christian here today. Ephesians 1.13 Having believed faith, saving faith in Christ, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That begs the other question. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, can you be demon-possessed? Is this just something that took place 2,000 years ago when demons had more of a full reign? Yes, you can be demon-possessed if you are a non-Christian here today. Now, Christ has um, snapped the works of the devil. Christ has conquered at the, at the cross. We're going to talk more about that later but he is still on a bit of a leash and can wreak havoc right now. He's not roaming completely loose. He's on a leash, and as we know, anything that he does, he must get permission from God. Well, secondly, verses 3-5, to five, we see this man who's violent and had supernatural strength. Notice it says that his dwelling, that is, he lived among the tombs and and we need to pay close attention to this. Mark gives us very vivid imagery. So much so that, that if we read, as I've read this multiple, multiple times this week, I found myself being thrown more and more into the story. That I could actually visualize it better and see what was going on. And his imagery is very clear as he gives these vivid 
details. And, and in particular, just in these verses too, one of the most deplorable descriptions of a man being demon-possessed in all the Bible. This poor man was not only a horror to himself, he was a terror to anybody else. In fact, the, in the original, it, it speaks of how extremely violent he was with three resounding negatives. Now, having that many negatives in a row is like super enhanced on steroids in the Greek, but it actually says three times that no one was able to bind him. No one two times, no more, translated anymore in our uh, translation, was able to bind him. Two adverbs, one ad, adjective that he gives to speak of how supernatural strength this person had being under the control of the devil. No one was able to bind him anymore, literally no more, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken to pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Even shackles and chains being torn apart. And, and the word here for being torn apart is to literally shatter, to smash, to crush. It, it was like they had no chance against this supernatural demonic strength that was being showed here. The word for subdue, no one was able to subdue him, speaks of taming wild animals. Or it can actually refer to humans as well, but taming wild animals. And so no one was able to tame this beast, really, under the demonic control of many, many demons. The same word that James uses in chapter 3, for every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But this man, this man under the, the control of so many demons could not be tamed. He could not be subdued. Try to think today of situations outside of Hollywood, <laughs> like real situations, okay? Not the Incredible Hulk and all this. But you read of situations where people take controlled substances like PCP or crystal methamphetamine and how in a fit of rage it takes five grown men to hold this person down because they're absolutely violent, out of control, with almost supernatural strength. You think of others in mental hospitals and the fits and rage that take place there. And, and I'm not saying every single person that took that drug or, the, you know, or whatever is demon-possessed. All I'm saying is we can relate if you just think about it. And just think of the Hollywood news, or, these, or Hollywood news, the, the news and, and without Hollywood. And, and then even these bath salts. I don't even know anything about them, but, but it would put people into such a rage to where they're eating flesh and attacking. I mean, this is demonic behavior. Again, not saying that every single one of those situations is that, but that is a picture of what is going on. Having talked and counseled with former heavy drug abusers, I can tell you that there is huge demonic influence in that. And of course, this is the third exorcism in the Gospel of Mark and the most dramatic by far. We saw the one in chapter 1. There was one in chapter 3. This one in verse 5, it just says, notice the word, constantly, 
Night and day, he was screaming. Literally, the word is screeching. So just picture having to plug your ears because the screech was so intense. He's screeching night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, and he was gashing himself, cutting himself with stones. or You might picture flint stones or sharp volcanic rock just probably loaded with scars from cutting himself so many times and fresh blood oozing from some of these. This is a terrible picture of a man under the control of evil. It's a very sobering picture, and I hope it's sobering for you. It reminds me of when Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal are on Mount Carmel, right? And, and remember the, 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 what happens when the prophets of Baal, they begin crying out to their God, and their God's not answering. And so they think, oh, I know how to get His attention, and they start cutting and gashing themselves so that blood is flowing. Taking Luke's account, Luke tells us that this man was naked as well. So we see here, that this shows us, even verse 5 here, that the whole gashing and self-destruction shows us how sadistic and how demons want to torture those who they possess. This is a picture of what Satan would love to do to every person alive. If he had full sway, this is exactly what he would want to do to every single person alive. Yes, that's including you. And, and this is why it's a, just one little takeaway or application, I guess, for all of us, and especially you young people, is to be very careful with playing around with evil games, evil music, and that kind of stuff. And now that's a whole other, how do you describe evil music? And all? Well, if it's blatantly satanic, you probably want to flee from it, okay? Uh, and, and some of these games that are played among teenagers and even adults, conjuring up spirits and all of that. You are playing with fire, literally. And you should flee from that if you believe the Word of God to be true. You know, the first promise of the Gospel came to us after the fall in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Later, Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world and now the ruler of the world will be cast out. In other words, victory was sure. This is in Christ's last few days of life. Later in chapter 16, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Another aspect to this story that's quite amazing considering that Jesus was a Jew and that He was considered a rabbi is this whole scene is a picture of ceremonial uncleanness. We read earlier from Numbers uh, chapter 19 and, and how to even come near a tomb or to touch a corpse and, and, and all of that, that you would be unclean. And if you didn't go through those steps, you would be cut off from Israel forever. story is loaded with this. And just as we saw the Pharisees spying when they're passing through the grain fields so that they can bring the accusation, whoops, they ate a little grain. If they saw what was going on here, they would really have a conniption fit, whatever that would look like. <laughs> but it wouldn't be pretty. So that's the deplorable condition of this man. It's a graphic picture. It's a, it, it's a picture that should grip us. It's a picture that should cause us to erupt with thanksgiving to God for the saving Gospel and the deposit of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people.
Secondly, verses 6 to 10, demons must submit to his supreme authority. This demoniac who broke the chains and all of that now comes and bows before Jesus. Seeing him at a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. That's an amazing thing, okay? And the word that's used used here is actually the word for worship. (laughs) It means to bow down and give reverence to. Now, this wasn't true worship. This was a demonstrating of reverence a recognition of Jesus Christ's supremacy and superiority. And in this scene, we see suddenly the explosive violence of this man does not prevail. He does not rush up to Jesus and attack Him, but rather, he is subdued already. When the demoniac and these demons are confronted with Jesus' divinity, they must bow, just as the wild storm did last week in our text verses 7 to 10 jesus of course is the judge of all creatures look what he says in verse 7 verse 7 and shouting with a loud voice he says what business do we have with each other jesus son of the most high god son of the most high god a designation that this is the true god of the world that this is the one that is transcendent this is the one that is above all others And you'll remember what James says, oh, you believe that God is one. You do well. By the way, the demons believe and shudder. They tremble at this fact. Different translations have been made here. The the NAS, as I just read, what business do we have with each other? Um, Leave me alone. Why do you bother me? But they're all translations from actually a Hebrew idiom that means, what to me and to you? And because he's shouting it, the words, the tone to me demonstrates an anger, a frustration, an outburst. Why have you come? What do I have to do? What business do I have with you? In regards to demons uh, explaining who God is, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I mean, one thing, there's certainly the demonic world knows who this is. And back in chapter 1, the, the first miracle actually, when he's in the synagogue teaching and there was a, uh, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, uh, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's that interesting story in Acts 16. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but where Paul is preaching and there's the slave girl that had a spirit of divination and, and she's following them around saying, this is Paul, servant of the Most High God. And what happens? Paul gets annoyed and casts out the demon. You see, God doesn't need forces of evil to be promoting His cause. He doesn't need that. And so here, too, the demon does that. It would be like in the movie Batman, the Joker promoting peace and law and order in Gotham City. It's like that's just unlike his nature. And so, too, for a demon to declare who he is. But there's a loud, angry outcry. And notice this is the first of many where he implores. Look at that word. Implores or begs some of the translations. I implore you by God, do not... Torment me. It's a recognition that Jesus Christ has authority to judge and to cast into eternal judgment forever. And where the demons will be sent one day 
a paraphrase might be, do not send me to the abyss yet. That would be a just paraphrase. Demons know that on that final day, the little leash that they have, the relative freedom that they have in certain areas will be removed forever when they are permanently cast into hell. Their judgment is sure. Their, their doom is certain. But now they have reign on a leash, even in the perfect providence of God. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So in verse 8, he says, He had been saying to him, that's imperfect tense, that means Jesus actually said it more than once, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. But this dialogue is recorded for us, I think, to shed more light on this situation. It's an incredible dialogue. Verse 9, he was asking him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. What is a legion? A legion is a great army. It's the largest military unit in the Roman army, which numbered anywhere from 58 to 6,800 foot soldiers, um, depending on the, the time frame that you look at that. Suffice it to say, it means many, many, many. I think Mark is using it figuratively. It's not that there's exactly 600 and, or 6,000 demons inside of him, but that there are many demons inside of him. And, and it adds to this idea, this, this picture of violence and terror as, as this militant term is now used here. It, 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 already, it adds to this already violent picture Frankly, it's a terrifying reminder of the amount of demons that really exist. It's a terrible reminder of, of, of the, the dread and, and the, the wickedness and the terror and the death and the destruction which is their goal. There's other texts in the Bible that speak of a person being possessed with multiple demons. Matthew 12 is one of them. When it speaks of the one uh, unclean spirit being cast out, it goes out, it takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and then they go in and they live there, and the last state of the man has become worse than the first. But Jesus, of course, has the power to prevail in this situation over this man. But the demons have another request. Their first request, don't send me into the abyss just yet. Look at verse 10. And he had, he had begun to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now this is a curious request. First of all, it's not just implore, which means begging, but it's earnestly. This is begging, begging, not to be sent out of the area. And this, this is another picture of just the wickedness and depravity of the way demons are. It's a very eerie picture. Okay, if you don't send us into the abyss, but don't send us out of this region because we like this region so much because there's death, skeletons, tombs, stench, and they want to be able to remain in that area. This is where they feel at home. Don't send me somewhere where this is where they feel at home. So we've seen the dreadful condition of what demon possession is, how the demons submit to Jesus, and more quickly on these last three points, demons are destructive, very simply, from verses 11 to 13. The story here takes another turn. Uh, there's a large herd of swine feeding in a nearby mountain, we're told. 
And notice the demons implore yet again. See it in verse 12. Implored Him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. The demons realize at this point there is no way they're going to resist the command of Christ. They must submit to what He says. And so they implore. They, they beg. They, they appeal uh, to be sent into the pigs. Now some people say, well, no. Where were the pigs? How could they see Him? How far away were they? I, I think they were probably just an eye shot. <laughs> you know, you could see them somehow or another. I don't think that's important to the story. But what are the reasons? Why would they want to go into the swine? Well, they're destructive by nature, right? They want to destroy. A mass suicide fits right into the plan of a demonic spirit. Their goal ultimately is to deface the image of God, ultimately man. But if they can't do that, they want to deface and destroy God's creation. And so they beg for this. Another underlying motive that may be there... um, is that knowing that if they could destroy those herds, would Jesus have a better chance of reaching those people in that region or less of a chance? Less of a chance, right? They're going to be mad. I mean, we're going to see in a minute, they're begging Him, get out of here! We don't want anything to do with you! And so if they can bring destruction to the livelihood of the owners of those herds, they are not going to be open to the Gospel message. Back to the whole uh, uncleanness picture, furthermore, than the Jewish mindset, uh, pigs were just altogether unclean. Deuteronomy 14 uh, says that you shall not eat of its flesh nor touch their carcasses. They were not allowed to eat pigs. And these pigs were likely used to help feed the Roman army. Uh, One of the commentators, Edwards, not Jonathan Edwards, says... Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs surrounded by people employed with unclean occupations in an unclean Gentile territory. Just emphasizing that point. Verse 13, we see the demons immediately loosen their vice grip upon this man and they obey the command of Christ. This verse is, it's sort of in fast, if you have a digital camera and you're filming little Johnny playing soccer, and you put it on burst mode, what is it? It takes multiple pictures close together. Like that, right? And look at the text. That's exactly what we have here. It's the force of the original. Jesus gave, first verb, them permission. Coming out, second one, out of the, uh, coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, the third, and then they rushed down the steep bank of the sea and were drowned in the sea. It's something that takes place almost instantaneously. Boom, 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 boom. And then they drown into the sea. That's the picture that is presented before us. Paul tells us in Colossians, when he, that is Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And it's a picture of Christ's triumph. Now, you know, there's a whole other debate. Well, how could Jesus allow this? I mean, this was the 2,000 pigs represented many people's livelihood. That's a big herd, right? That's going to feed a lot of people. What is the ethical justification for this? How could Jesus allow this kind of economic loss? Well, I submit to you what 
Paul says in Romans 9, first and foremost, who are you to answer back to God, right? This is the living word of God. This is what's happened. Who are we to judge whether Christ did something good or evil? We know he can only do good. And secondly, the townspeople obviously were greedy and selfish. You see, according to the townspeople, their herds and the protection of their herds was more important than a man in a miserable condition that needed their help. They cast this man out. They didn't want anything to do with him. And so, brothers and sisters, the takeaway is this. The good done to one living human being far outweighs thousands of pigs. That's the point. The Gospel message is magnified here. Christ's love and compassion for those that are suffering and helpless is magnified here. Just as the story of Abraham offering Isaac, you know, that whole story, the ultimate good overrides all other good. And so Jesus is showing us that the rescue and healing and restoration of one person is more important than any number of animals. See, God alone, or man alone is made in God's image. The other creation is important, for sure, but man alone is made in his image. Well, verses 14 to 17, there's an interesting twist here where the power and majesty of Christ caused these people to become very terrified. The herdsmen, of course, ran away, reported it to the city and the country, and the people came to see what was it that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. See the reaction of the people. First of all, this man is completely restored. And you know, like it says in Romans 5, when we were helpless, just like this man, Christ came at the right time and died for the ungodly. Christ meets this man in his helplessness. Of course, the, the, person, the, the herdsmen are the caretakers of the swine. They're not the owners, but they, they're like, this is terrible. We're going to be responsible. I'm going to work the rest of my life to repay this. I've got to run into town, tell what had happened, and of course, everybody comes out to see. They don't want to be held responsible. But this is marvelous that this man, they observed the man who had been demon-possessed in his right mind, sitting there, clothed. Isn't that amazing? This man had gone through a complete transformation. Just as the great storm was calm to a perfect still, so this man was completely back to normal. If the sun makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I think it's very interesting and I think it's intentional that the end of both of these stories ends with terror. The disciples, in verse 41, after he calms the sea, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this? When confronted with divinity, the terror that grips the disciples' heart far outweighs the huge waves and the water in the boat. And so too, here before us, they feel the power that Jesus Christ had to cast out demons more than the the man who was filled with demons. These folks witnessed an amazing miracle. All these townspeople rushed out because of the pigs going down the hill. 
they see something that is absolutely amazing. They know who this man is. They've tried to bind him with chains and shackles to no avail. They've cast him off into the tombs. And now they come and they see what has happened. It's got to be related to this man who came over from the western shore, the Sea of Galilee, and now has done something to this man so that he's in his right mind. Sadly, even witnessing something like that, and if you look at it, it's, they describe, verse 16, they describe to them all that had happened, so you're getting eyewitness accounts to these people, and what is their response? Unbelief. They will not believe even after all the eyewitness accounts. So again, another imploring in verse 17. They began to implore him to leave their region. They wanted him out of there. And some of you here today might be just like these townspeople. That you leave the same as when you came. That there's a response of unbelief. That somehow as a non-Christian, that you will not submit yourself to the Gospel message. This is the condition of every human heart apart from grace. It's a deplorable condition of hardness of heart. But praise be to God that He still saves people today by His power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He he turns rebels into treasures and he, He transforms wicked, enslaved sinners into precious vessels fit for the Master's use. And that's what we see with this man, really. This takes us to our last point. The cured man's response is a picture of discipleship. And, and of course he wants to go with Jesus. He begs if he can go with Him. I've just been transformed by this man. I want to follow you. It's a normal, it's a natural response. And it's interesting here, really what he's doing is he's bowing a second time in humble submission, recognizing in true worship, who this is. So he begins imploring him, verse 18, that he might accompany him into the boat. Jesus says no. Isn't that interesting? Verse 19, and he did not let him. That's pretty remarkable. But again, God's ways are so much higher than our ways, right? See what he says. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Jesus had other plans. Uh, First of all, a Gentile going back with Jesus to a semi-Jewish area would have been a stumbling block for the Jews, right? At this point in the ministry of Christ, later in Matthew 10, it says, go to the lost sheep of, I- of the house of Israel. Jew- Jesus had previously given a command of silence when he cast out demons. This time, he tells him, go and shout it from the rooftops. The great mercy that God, that the Lord has had on you. Luke uses the word God. Go and tell everyone, beginning with your home, and go to the whole region. The response of this man, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, that's a huge region, okay? What great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Now, there's a few things to point out here. First of all, Jesus tells him, tell them what the Lord has done for you. He takes, he says, what Jesus has done for me. Another uh, pointer to Jesus Christ, divinity. 
that this is the one that cast out demons, he surely must be God. This man really becomes the first Gentile missionary to the Gentiles, even before Paul. He, he is, he's sent to the, as a Gentile missionary to Gentiles. Christ had a greater purpose for this man. And just basic application for us, be sure to tell others what Christ has done for you. You have a testimony. If you are in Christ today, you have a testimony. You have some testimony. And you may not, well, I don't have a testimony. You hear Christians say, well, I never sinned greatly, or I was never demon-possessed. You have a testimony. You once had a hard heart. You were a rebel before God, and now you believe. John Newton, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. That's a testimony right there. I was once blind, and now I see. Like the blind man in John 9, as he runs after any dialoguing with the, the uh, Pharisees, and uh, maybe you want to be his disciples too, and he, be, he begins to shed the light. This one thing I know, I was once blind, now I see. Some people, when they give their testimony, think that they're the best gift that, they've, that, that has ever been given to God. And they'll boast about how much they've done for God's kingdom and that kind of thing. May I just encourage you, if you have a propensity to that, to learn from this man. This man went and told all the great things Jesus had done for him. Do you see the difference? I've benefited the kingdom of God so much because I do thus and thus and I've done this and I've served here versus Jesus Christ has done so many great things in me and He has completely transformed me. We would do well to learn from this man's zeal and his passion. No doubt running through this whole area where it says, and everyone was amazed as he's running, Jesus has made me whole. We don't know how much of a reputation he had, but just the fact that he was in his right mind was a bold testimony. Well, very quickly in conclusion, Jesus... In this picture, it's amazing. He defies the ceremonial laws to rescue one sinner in a desperate condition. He's among the dead. It's foul-smelling, intense wickedness. And yet Jesus comes to those who are weak and helpless. He comes when we've got no strength left in ourselves. He comes when we're, when we're hopeless and, and helpless. But just as it says in Romans, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So come and cast your burden upon the Lord. Secondly, what will your response be to Jesus Christ and His divinity? Will it be a response of unbelief like the townspeople or the response of the healed man? The irony is that some people say, well, if only I could see a miracle, then I would believe in God. You realize what a fallacy that is? Read Luke 16 later today. Read that account where the rich man is in hell and he says, but go and send, send somebody from the dead. Send Lazarus to my brothers. Then they'll believe. And what does, what does Abraham say? As Jesus is telling the story, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe them, neither will they believe somebody coming back from the dead. Satan's goal is to blind the minds 
of the unbelieving. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, realize that your sin is great before a holy God and cry out in mercy. Cry out and beg to be made whole again and He will hear you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save unworthy sinners 2,000 years ago. Redeeming those who were before the cross. His blood being effectual for all who would come after Him in faith leading until the second coming of Christ. May the Lord have His way with each of us today. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for His compassion and His tenderness. Oh Lord, we thank You for this account that You have given before us. Lord, may we not quickly forget the utter dread and deplorable condition of all those without Christ. Lord, may we be aware that there is a devil that hates our very souls. Lord, may we cast all of our trust upon You. We thank You for the work of Christ and what He has accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.